Hey there, I'm Stephanie Domet. I'm an editor at Mindful Magazine, and I'm a writer for Mindful.org. Hi, I'm Barry Boyce, editor-in-chief of Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org, and author of the regular column, Point of View. And this is the Point of View podcast. We are coming to you today, as has become our habit, from Barry's cozy office at Mindful. It's a sunny day here at last after so many days of torrential rain. Uh, Barry's squeaky chair is squeakier than ever, it seems. And we are settling in to talk about something a little surprising, actually, and that's politics. And whether mindfulness generally is political and whether mindful's approach to it particularly is political. Uh, Barry, when you were a kid, you no doubt received the message that you should never talk to anyone about their religion, their income, or their politics. So what made you want to write about politics in your point of view column? Well, for many years, we have um, received messages from people saying that um, mindfulness is not uh, political, it shouldn't be political, and please keep politics out of Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org. Generally, these have come in responses to things we might do in our Mindful or Mindless column, where we might ridicule or be critical of somebody who was uh, over-polluting or um, seemed to celebrate um, contraception being made more available to college students, for example, or, um, you know, it's trod into the area of, a, of abortion, you know, one of the third rails of politics, particularly in the United States. Um, you know, when we've dabbled in uh, climate change, we've had people bring that up. So I've been thinking for some time I uh, ought to present uh, the understanding that we've generally had at Mindful over the years about where politics fits into mindfulness and where it doesn't. You know, in what way is uh, mindfulness uh, apolitical and in what way is it inevitably political? unavoidably political. It seems like it would be easy enough uh, to leave aside the big P politics, so, you know, party politics, particular um, platform ideas or politicians' points of views, but it's the small P politics that I think you're talking about, and those are, those are different. And you write in your column, as Aristotle indicated, human beings are political animals, by which he meant that each human being lives within a community, if not many communities, and within those communities we seek to work together to make a good life for all concerned. We aspire to make the world a better place. Why is that kind of politics inevitable in the practice of mindfulness? Well, what I was talking about there is, you know, it's just really starting with the etymology of the word political, which comes from polis, a polis is a polity, you know, simply a community. So we live together. You know, we share resources and food, and we have to work together in communities, families, extended families. So 
that is an inevitable part of our lives. And why does that small p politics come in in terms of mindfulness? When we start practicing mindfulness, we tend to be paying attention to ourselves, to our own anxiety, to the difficulty we may be having with our inner critic, to the feeling that um, we're not able to pay attention, that we get lost in thought too easily. Um, so as we work on our relaxed focus on an attention to what's immediately at hand, starting with our own body and breath and immediate surroundings. Ultimately, we begin to focus or notice and work with the next uh, layer out from there is that we're connected to other people. That, for example, if we're working with our emotions, emotions have a great deal to do with other people. I mean, if you were the only person on earth, one wonders what kind of emotions you would have. Um, so when you look at your connections to other people, um, it automatically gets you into realms that end up being political. How do we share resources, for example, um, which gets you into uh, issues of uh, equality and equity? Are people treated the same? Do they have the same opportunity? Are they discriminated against, discriminated against in various ways? Do they get the same level of attention to their health? to their education? Uh, are we despoiling the planet that, and the environment that provides our shared resources? You can't help but stumble into this kind of arena. Is that true? Is it inevitable? Can you practice true mindfulness and not take other people <coughs> and their welfare into consideration? You know, I like to think of, of mindfulness as um, involving a and mindfulness practice. You know, we always make the distinction between mindfulness, the basic human capability, and mindfulness practice, which cultivates that capability. So I like to think of it as having a range of possibilities in terms of how deeply you engage it. So somebody might just take a minute here or there to focus on their breath and, and attention to what they're doing. And if that helps lessen their anxiety and perhaps also makes them a little easier on themselves and a little kinder to others around them, let's say maybe they don't scream at their child as a result of that, then fine. That's what mindfulness ends up being for that person. And that's fabulous. That's good for that person and good for all of us. If you take it a little farther, begin to investigate with the power of your focused attention and your awareness, mindfulness, I do believe, will inevitably 
take you into these realms that I've been talking about. So is there a mindfulness without the small p politics? Yes, there probably is. But if you stick with it with some vigor and curiosity, you'll run into those other things. So what kinds of ideas would you say fall into that small p politics arena for Mindful, the magazine, and Mindful.org? Well, I think I've mentioned some of them already. I think you need to think interconnected, interconnectedness, you know, the, the things that arise when you think of how you're connected to others and to the world. We share resources. So um, are we sharing them fairly? That can arise simply as a question of, of, of uh, in your own heart, am I being stingy or generous? Ah. Uh, ah. And, you know, that the larger questions of equality and equity really emerge from that basic feeling in one's heart. Uh-huh. Uh, that's where all the big P political issues come from, feelings in people's hearts and minds about what's, what feels uh, appropriate and right and fair. A big P politics manifestation of that would be um, tackling the issue, say, of guaranteed income right. or uh, welfare reform. And that's where we don't go because we don't have the expertise or the capability or the um, journalistic mission to investigate those kinds of questions in a sophisticated way. Right. You know, big P politics. I have several friends who are in legislatures right. who have to, you know, they have to take positions. And uh, there's always a push and a pull. You know, there's no pure position in politics. Um, you have to, when you make one group happy, you make another group unhappy. And when we get into real politics where you have to um, adjudicate things and make laws and uh, favor certain groups over others and uh, decide who gets taxed more and who gets taxed less, um, that brings out some really bad human habits mm. <laughs> where we get polarized and um, we get nasty with each other. This is why we get letters to please keep mindfulness out of politics. Mm. I understand that. I would like there to be a room on any given issue you have um, a range from uh, conservative to um, Radical, you might say, or you know, radical at either end of the spectrum. And there are age-old tensions that will never go away for, in governing. For example, the tension between individual freedom right. and community values. Will that ever be decided? No, that's not going to be decided. That's a you know, that tension exists. It exists within the U.S. Constitution, for example. There's not a permanent decision about, well, 
it's all about individual freedoms, uh, forget about community values, or it's all about community values, forget about individual freedom. I mean, that tension is how we can make, you know, the best society that we can on any given day, right? It's... Exactly. When democracy works, you know, through the debate around that kind of tension, we arrive at the next best possible thing we can do, and then that, you know, changes over time. But um, so I'd like there to be room for if somebody feels, if somebody takes a conservative viewpoint on the political realm, I'd like them to feel like they could read mindful and, you know, not be completely turned off. And, uh, you know, conservatism has changed a lot over the years, but for a long time, and maybe still in some cases, there's something I think very admirable about traditional conservatism in that it was not a big on war spending. Mm. <laughs> um, they, they were much more um, conservative about spending on war. Um, and that may have changed, but, you know, a conservative turn of mind is not necessarily a bad thing in all cases. Right. And uh, so... That's a small-c conservative you're working with, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if that... Did that answer the question? It was... I think so. I asked you, you know, what things are in the small-p politics arena. And you talked about compassion. You know, you talked about what's good for the individual and what's good for the many. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with caring for others. That's yeah. that's where the... And when, the, you know, the big P parts that get tricky, I gave one example, um, you know, about, say, a welfare reform or a guaranteed income. Another one would be to be anti-corporate. Uh -huh. uh, that So, if, you know, if we talk about taking care of the planet, um, some people believe what's important is to be in the anti-globalization movement. Right. And to be, it's corporations that are the problem. Well, we're not going to take a position on that. We're going to allow people to see wherever their own mindfulness and awareness takes them and however they want to manifest and get and engage the world, that's up to them. Mm -hmm. Because you're getting into the specifics there mm -hmm. where more expertise is needed and the kind of journalism that we call fourth estate, which speaks uh, truth to power and engages uh, in true uh, political decision making, which we're not capable of doing or, or interested in doing. I think you know this about me, that I am engaged in a lot of making things with my hands. I sew all my own clothes and I'm part of a, you know, I'm, I'm a cog in the wheel of an online community of people who are similarly engaged. And this is a conversation that's happening there where, oh, some people have named their patterns things that are culturally appropriative, for instance. And so there's a push from other makers. Could you change the name of that pattern? And there's a lot of conversation in the comments of Instagram posts about, you know, I, I don't want politics in my sewing. Can we all just get back to our sewing? Right. 
And I think politics is everywhere, small p, politics is everywhere. And there's a lot of privilege in being able to literally stick to your knitting. Yeah. So I'm curious what you would say to a listener or a reader who doesn't, who would say, I don't want any politics in here. Just stick to your mindfulness. Well, I would say that, that and why, this is why exactly why I wrote the column, that, that, that as uh, an editor and as editors generally, we have to walk along a lot of razor's edges, mm -hmm. you know, where we don't have the luxury of certainty. Uh, and we have to make a call uh, on a case-by-case basis. So we did a piece recently by a naturalist meditation teacher, Mark Coleman, who was celebrating uh, being awake in the wild and engaging with wilderness. But he was also lamenting all of the damage to the earth that he sees happening from climate change. So I felt that that was a workable thing to do and didn't prescribe exact certain policies. Um, and so that's the kind of judgment call we need to make. The question about, you know, when you talk about privilege and cultural appropriation and microaggressions and, you know, this is an arena that is very difficult now, not only for the small p political world, but particularly for the big p political world, because, um, you know, my politician friends are beleaguered by identity politics at this point mm. because it carves up the citizenry into a lot of subgroups and when you're weighing there's all sorts of wrong being done in the world that you one is motivated to change so in the realm of identity politics sometimes um, people end up with more division when we should come together more around larger issues mm. and be patient, be a little more patient with how change happens mm. in terms of uh, discrimination by, uh, you know, subgroup. And I don't want to be vague about that. You know, I want to be, give a, you know, I should give some sort of very specific example. So, um, African Americans are subject to all sorts of microaggressions, um, as just to take one group. And, you know, I, I've seen and witnessed, you know, with my black friends, those kinds of microaggressions and. And um, I probably, I'm certainly have perpetrated some of them myself. Mm. You know, where you know, I saw a situation where a guy was trying to be friendly on the train and 
saying to this uh, black guy that, oh, are you the same guy who was working here yesterday? And he said, well, no. And basically, the implication was that, well, all black people look alike to me. Right. And that's a microaggression. Mm. Now, you know, is, that, is, a, is a fight going to break out over that? No. Um, so we, and this is a real place where mindfulness awareness should come in, can come in, that as uh, my friend Rhonda McGee, a law professor who has a new book coming out called Color, about color insight, rather than being colorblind, mm. she's an African-American legal and justice advocate. She says, how do we continue to open doorways while not denying the truth? So there is the truth of microaggressions, but if you put too much energy into fighting uh, around that, you may uh, alienate the very people whose minds you're trying to change. Right. And that's what Rhonda is. That's a fine line that she's mm -hmm. always walking. You know, I want to bring people around, so I'm going to try to be accommodating, but I'm not going to do it in such a way that I'm going to lie. Right. And deny what's that happening. What's happening. Yeah. So, you know, another area would be privilege. Privilege is a very tricky word. You know, white privilege means that, you know, automatically when I walk into a room as a white male, I have certain advantages that um, other people don't have. Unearned advantages. Mm -hmm. Now, what some people mistakenly take the term to mean is that I am necessarily privileged and have privileged myself, right. which isn't necessarily the case. What it's asking us to look at is with awareness, and here's where mindfulness comes in, how does that inherent advantage affect the environment? Uh -huh. And how should I respond to that? That's one thing. So let's say if, if I know that I'm inherently privileged in a situation, how can I undercut that? Mm -hmm. How can I bring us to a place of shared humanity? And where, um, so that's one thing, your personal behavior around it. So where you can use your privilege to, uh, I don't know, help level a playing field or put an apple box under somebody who needs that to yeah. reach the playing field. Yeah, well, you know, it's simple things like, let's say I'm introducing my friends, Ali, Atman, and Andy, who, you know, run the Holistic Life Foundation in Baltimore. How long, as a you know, white male, I spend... You know, how much oxygen do I take up in the room right. as opposed to, you know, pushing them, putting them forward? Just getting out of the way. For getting them. out of the way. Yeah. You know, that's, there are just all sorts of simple examples like that. But the more profound way in which the awareness of something like privilege 
going to be important is an understanding how it's systemically built into our political realm and how you look for creative ways to undo that over a long period of time. Right. That, you know, the, the um, as Martin Luther King used to like to quote, uh, the arc of um, history is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. I hope I haven't screwed that up. But, um, so it's a, you know, these uh, intractable long-term problems um, need long-term concerted attention. Uh, you know, they don't just flip overnight. Right. Right. Related to um, Rhonda's discussion of uh, opening doorways while not um, denying the truth is an attention to words and how words work. So, um, and this is something that mindfulness and awareness can bring. We can have a, it can help us to have a subtler understanding around words because part of mindfulness is not reifying things quite so much. So, for example, you could understand that the word privilege yeah. could mean different things to different people in different contexts. Not that it could, but that it will. Mm -hmm. So, when I heard and was educated in the notion of white privilege when it first started coming around, I don't know, I don't know, is it a decade? Uh, um, when it was discussed broadly, I found it... You know, once I'd come to understand it, I found it um, enlightening, and it offered insight. Yeah. But I was talking to Rhonda the other day. She said, but also at times, words like that can be offensive to some people, and then some people will use it as a club. Um, so any word can offer a certain amount of light and insight, but it could also offer um, alienation. Mm. And being aware of the kind of yin-yang quality of, of words in that way can be very helpful. Um, you know, it, um, and it's interesting that Rhonda is a legal expert because, you know, when, when justice systems are working at their best, they're really careful with words. Right. Because they understand uh, the nuances around words. And why that's a political topic is that, as I was saying before, any time you take a, a political act, an overt political act, a certain number of people are happy and a certain number of people are less happy. Mm -hmm. All right, let's change gears a little bit. Here at Mindful, we start our meetings in a really beautiful, nourishing way with a few minutes of mindfulness. And lately, you've been leading us in a practice near the end of our sit where we, and I'm going to not say this as nicely as you do, but we sort of 
feel or become aware of the, the heat of our own hearts and send that warmth out to someone in pain to lift their pain and then extend that warmth to ourselves as if there were no difference between us. Is that political? It's certainly about kindness and compassion. And I think the phrase there, um, you know, when you're uh, first starting with sending the warmth out to soothe somebody in pain, that has a direction. But then when you let it come back on yourself and soothe your own pain as if there is no difference between you and the other, then you can understand the compassion to be environmental. Mm. You know, there's an environmental warmth there that, um, and I think where that relates to small p political is that um, we work best when we have some kind of shared ground to move forward on. If we only have polarity, then, um, you know, we end up usually in the bloodiest kinds of fights that, that um, don't end well. When we understand our interconnectedness, it's understanding that we are connected, but yet we're different. And we see things from different perspectives. And hopefully our awareness and our feeling of compassion can help us in negotiating these differences, whether they're differences in terms of privilege or our viewpoint about um, climate or bicycle lanes, <laughs> free college education, right. you know, all these kinds of things. But we're trying to negotiate those to the extent that we can remember our interconnectedness, we may uh, be able to negotiate it a little bit better. And I think that's finally where mindful and mindfulness and awareness can be helpful to the political process. It can be helpful to, to activists. It can be helpful to the average citizen in trying to work with um, our emotions and behavior when we need to negotiate things in the world. Right, because it can help us kind of regulate ourselves and, and imagine that other people are just like us with equal things at stake, extend our compassion. Think Nelson Mandela. All right. Think of what he was able to accomplish politically uh, through his great personal discipline mm. and mindfulness and awareness. Um, he accomplished something that nobody would believe possible. And he famously, uh, you know, as the movie Invictus shows us, uh, he famously reached out to the Boers and tried to understand their psychology and how to um, negotiate with them. Very importantly, he did not deny, as this is kind of a pretty good example of what Rhonda McGee was talking about. Mm. He was able to open doorways while not denying the truth. Right. That apartheid 
was a criminal regime. But then you're left with, okay, how do I get rid of it? Yeah. If I, you know, how do I get rid of it with the least possible bloodshed and the and the greatest long-term outcome? South Africa is still negotiating around that, but they're much better off, obviously, for having had Mandela, and we're much better off. So I think that's where, you know, that's an example of personal discipline and truly mindfulness and awareness, um, you know, comes into play. Well, that's compelling. I'd like to be more like Nelson Mandela. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, how can I, how can I work with, with those ideas? What's, what's something I could introduce to my practice that would help me work with those ideas? Well, I think you, you were talking about it already. First is to work with the, you know, the regu regulating our emotions. And then, um, you know, another practice can be to explore your aspirations and values, you know, which is a contemplative exercise. It's not simply, um, when I talk about a contemplative exercise, I mean a, a situation where we use the stability of our mindfulness and awareness to take the time to dispassionately examine something in our mind, mm. like the fact that you know, something you may be maybe very motivated about. You know, for whatever reason, I've been motivated a around uh, social justice my whole life. So I've had to examine in my own mind What's the best way for that to manifest? Um, you know, how can I fulfill that aspiration in a way that, that works best for who I am in my life? So, you know, frankly, I think being an editor of, at Mindful Magazine is the, one of the ways to do that. Right. And it's brought me in touch with wonderful people who I've learned so much from. So you regulate your emotions, examine your intentions and your aspirations and see where it takes you. Hmm. Nobody can, this is a really important point coming out of the piece. Nobody can dictate for you or ought to dictate for you precisely where you arrive at in terms of your political engagement. But mindfulness and awareness can help you to get there. Mm. Uh, but we're not going to say you ought to take this position or that specific position. That's a little tricky when you, you know, if you have, I'm a, you know, climate change deniers, well, okay, um, there's a line there. You know, we're going to pretty much, because it's scientifically, there's a strong scientific consensus. A trickier area is um, abortion. I'm sure that you know, a high percentage of our readers believe strongly in a woman's right to choose. Um, but I'm sure we have readers coming out of faith traditions and with take a different position on that. I will respect how they arrive at that position and they, you know, mindfulness practice is not 
denied to them because they've arrived at a different position on that. Am I going to support them if they decide to blow up an abortion clinic? No. Uh, you know, so, you know, how you engage around an issue is really uh, important. And um, so, you know, those what they call third rail issues in politics are ones where, you know, we tread gingerly but they're, um, you know, they're very uh, dangerous. Well, thank you for working through that with me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it made some sense. I feel like it did. I want to do something totally different now. Here's a question I've been longing to ask you for probably as long as I've known you. Tell me about the mindful vulgarian. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was teaching um, a program a number of years ago and Somebody wrote an evaluation um, calling me a vulgarian because uh -huh. I think I had dropped a few F-bombs and, um, you know, I used to work in Washington and if anybody's seen the, the show Veep, uh -huh. um, <laughs> behind the scenes Washington is a very vulgar place. People, it's also the same with comedians, uh -huh. you know, there are certain Newsrooms also. Newsrooms. There's certain sectors where, I don't know, because often, you know, when you, you have this outer world where you have to be very careful, uh, behind the scenes you let loose and, you know, you, you talk like a drunken sailor maybe. <laughs> and it's fun. You know, that it's interesting. I find it interesting that when um, we lose brain function, uh, I used to take care of a patient when I was in university, uh, an old guy, he was so sweet, but um, he'd lost a lot of brain function, but he what he had left was swearing. Oh. You know, this is, and, you know, apparently swearing or epithets, whatever you want to call it, comes from some sort of deep place in our, our brain, you know, uh. supposedly, because they have a lot of power. So, rah, you know, I'm not going to swear on here, but... I did my best, folks. Um, damn it. It's as, <laughs> as close as I'm going to get. Some light swearing. I'm not going to get in trouble, but... Um, so, yes, the, the mindful vulgarian uh, is me, mm -hmm. and uh, it's about uh, being plain spoken. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, my friend Pat Rockman and I want to do something with this. She has the idea that we're going to do something together called mouthing off mindfully. I love this. I'd like to be involved. <laughs> yeah. You want to hear some of our pet things that we want to mouth off about? Of course. We want to mouth off about the mistaken idea that mindfulness means that you turn into an inert, <laughs> nearly emotionless highly controlled, measured person at all times. So... You can almost see the white light beaming out from every pore. It's, um, you know, we were sharing about, you know, mutual health challenges and family challenges. You know, as you get older, Pat and I are about the same age, we're both in our 60s, 
the you have an increasing number of friends and family who have cancer, for example, and you've lost people. And, you know, in Pat's case, she's a cancer survivor. If you're taking care of other people, um, you know, you can get stretched. And Pat was re recounting how she was getting real gripey, like, you know, real snipey. And it became a signal to her She's a long-time mindfulness practitioner. Oh, something's out of whack here. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm overextended. If you take the point of view that mindfulness is about becoming inert, then you don't give yourself this opportunity to get gripey and grumpy and take that message about what's going on there. So mindfulness is, is, is about, you know, reveling in the full range of humanity, of, of, your, of your humanness, including the part of you that says, F you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I came close. Yep, you really did. <laughs> so, and there are other things we could mouth off about. But that's just one example. So not, you know, just the idea and the habit that can be, that can happen in the mindfulness realm of kind of um, being over-controlled and also holding yourself above other people. Mindfuler than thou. Mindfuler than thou, beautiful, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, being mindfuler than thou, you know. If you can't be understood by somebody you're standing next to in the bus shelter, then it's time to uh, check yourself. <laughs> before you wreck yourself. Before you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's beautiful. Barry, That's thanks for this. That's vulgar, I say. <laughs> There you go. Am I in? <laughs> oh, you're in now. Yeah, you're you're with us. You, may, you and Pat and I will... Will mouth off mindfully. I'm into it. And she calls mommy. <laughs> Mind off mouthfully. Mouth off mindfully. mindfully yeah. <laughs> Thanks for this. Hey, you're welcome. It was fun. Well, this has been Point of View with Mindful and Mindful.org Editor-in-Chief Barry Boyce. This podcast is a production of Mindful.org. If you'd like to talk to us about what you heard on this podcast, or if you have a question for Barry, you can drop us a line at podcast at Mindful.org. And you can find more of Barry Boyce at our website. Just search his name in the search bar. You'll find some audio practices, tons of stories, and the other nine episodes of Point of View. That's at Mindful.org. If the spirit moves you, consider leaving this podcast a review at iTunes or wherever you listen. Your review helps other listeners decide whether to press play on Point of View. I'm Stephanie Domat. Till next time, stay mindful of politics.